We got through January. It is February. We're one twelfth through twenty twenty four. Whoa! Do you ever think about it that way? Like, there. I don't know. I think about it with my birthday. <laughs> so it's all about you. <laughs> yes, yes, it's all about me. Where I think about like, oh, I've been however old, which. Uh-huh. It is true. Once you get to a certain age, you really do you forget how old you are, yeah. and not in a bad way. Just in a, it just you the don't numbers, think about it. And I don't like, think about it. Yeah. Yes, um, but I'll have moments when it's like, since I, my birthday is on September 11th, um, but on, you know, the 11th of each month, mm-hmm. they'll be like, a, "Oh, I've been this old. I'm this many months into this year," oh, and just like the you time think about it on like the 11th, yeah. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so like on March 11th, which will be like six months, mm-hmm. that's when it's like, oh my gosh, I'm six months through this year. Like that's a, that is how my, okay my brain works that way. And then of course my brain also works in the festival. How many months have passed since the last festival? How many months until the next festival? Yeah. I feel like that's honestly my calendar year is like June to June. Yes. And then everything else in between is kind of, where do I have to be and when? Well, and it's also because of how the festival works. We start talking about 2020. We start talking about 2024, like early end of June. Yeah. It's a, okay, now we're looking at 2024. So the year, just the calendar change. I know. Everyone in our lives and our partners, they love that. (laughs) That we're like nine months ahead of, ahead of. It's very confusing. So that's why the calendar year doesn't really do that much for me until I stop and think about the fact that it is. The year 2024 mm-hmm. and uh, what growing up you thought the year 2024 was going to look like. With- like Jetsons. Yeah. Like Jetsons. And it's not that. Nope. Nope. We have self-driving cars that. We're still driving ourselves around. Yeah. I know. That are very scary and I do not like. Yeah. This version of self-driving car I don't want. Oh. Like I'll wait for, for version 10 or whatever. Yes. A hundred percent. I know we talked about this recently that I have a new car that beeps at me a lot. Mm -hmm. And that when I went to Maryland park it for the first time, I couldn't park it because it was just beeping so much at me. Every time I got close to something that it was freaking me out. And finally I was like, I give up. And I'm a pretty excellent parallel parker from living in Los Angeles for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, and my old car could zip into spots really easily in this car. I'm like, don't know. Yeah. Don't know. It's scary. So sometimes I think we've overcorrected a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yes, I definitely thought 2024, you would just be able to like hit a button and then appear somewhere else. Yeah. Just like get sucked up a giant tube to wherever you need to be. You yeah. Know? It's like Harry Potter. Yeah. That's where the, that's flute where, powder. That's Where's where we were going. Powder? <laughs> I thought that's what 2024 <laughs> was going to bring was flu power. <laughs> and now we're back to February 1st, 2024, and it is not. It is not that. Unfortunately, it's a terrible segue, but unfortunately, there are things in our world that have not changed much. Yeah. And have not changed for the better. Yeah. Um, like the carceral system. <laughs> like- so, so yeah, this is, um, this is one of our conversations that we partnered with Hollywood Health and Society on. Um, they presented an entire track with us last year, which was a big deal and a first for us. I mean, we've partnered with them for, for multiple years, but they, they really went all in. I think we had five conversations total with them. And we knew that we wanted to talk about like the justice system. And there, there were like a a few different shows that all kind of premiered or came out around the same time that had a really interesting take on, sort of the effects of incarcerated the way that someone being incarcerated affects the, not just them, but the people outside Mm -hmm. who care about and love them and sort of also the process of coming out of prison and what that looks like and sort of reintegrating back into having a family, having a job, Mm -hmm. having, you know, 
stability that's hard to come by, especially right now, it seems. So there were a couple of different shows that really stood out to us that we wanted to have this conversation about kind of about both those things, what it looks like to reintegrate after prison and what that relationship is between being incarcerated and, you know, having this ecosystem outside of that. So, so yeah, we were watching shows like, you know, blind spotting and unprisoned and this fool, which all come at it in very different ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. blind spotting is this very kind of almost surreal take on it sometimes. And we absolutely adored that show. And this fool has a very comedic take on it. Unprisoned is sort of in the dramedy lane, I would say. It it definitely has a sense of humor about it, but it does have its more serious moments. And so so yeah, we we worked with Hollywood Health Society to kind of curate what this conversation would be and how, you know, best to represent it. And the group that we ended up with was a really incredible group and had a lot of different both personal experiences and creative experiences to talk about um, in terms of, you know, pitching these stories and trying to get these narratives to screen. This is one of those panels that when I listened back to, I realized that I didn't get to spend any time with these writers while they were at the festival and I'm upset about it in retrospect. I, yeah, they I will s- say they were they were mostly in and out. Um yep. they're all very busy and took <laughs> took a very condensed amount of time to to come to come be with us for this panel. But yeah, I, they all had incredible things to say. I would love to have them back hopefully for more things and longer um, in the future. Yep, they've been writing for a while. They all have incredible stories. Both stories of their personal connection to the topic. But then also, and I love that they start this way, their their stories of how they became writers and their journeys to getting now to the place that they are in, which Mm -hmm. I think is also really important and adds a lot of context for the conversation, for Mm -hmm. the roadblocks that they hit as they were trying to rise up the ranks in a writer's room in order to really be able to influence the stories that they wanted to tell. Yeah, And that it takes, unfortunately, a lot of power in a writer's room to be able to really put forth your personal stories and have a voice. Obviously, all writer's rooms are different. And some showrunners are very open to that from the beginning and want those personal stories. And some do not. They don't call it any names. (laughs) They allude to stories, which I also very much appreciate. Because I think this is, I think, a thing that happens a lot is you don't want to taint a story in a show you love knowing all the behind the scenes things which has happened a lot lately but this really feels like a place where they can enter into it from a positive aspect of the empowerment that they've been given and the stories that they have been able to tell and continue to tell Mm -hmm. which is a nice way in especially taking I mean some of them have had some really big tragedies in their past and to be able to take those stories and turn them around and be able to make something positive out of it. Yeah, they get very personal on this panel, which is always appreciated, but it is, I, I know, I can't imagine that's easy to kind of let people in in that way. But they, as writers, like, I think they're, that is that is part of how they tell their stories is really like drawing from that personal experience. Um, but yeah, it's, they, they're all very honest and vulnerable about their experiences and, I think it made for a really rich conversation and I think there's a lot more to cover on this topic both with these shows and and the other shows that we didn't have on this specific panel. So I hope that we get the chance to sort of revisit this soon. Yeah, because this, this is a prime example of a conversation that we love to have because it can be a, such a foreign world to so many people. And this is where we really talk about the power of story and the impact of great television on society and culture, because you're watching a story that you maybe don't have any firsthand experience with, but you're, and so maybe have a judgment of it based on previous things that you've seen. So this is just goes to show why it's so important to show so many different versions of what happens 
to someone when they're incarcerated and when they come out and what happens to their family. Because I feel like we have one view of it so much of the time. Mm. And this shows all these different stories that they talk about and the other ones that you mentioned that hopefully we can deep dive into at some point. There's just, everyone has such a different walk and you can't put lump everything into one. Yeah. Which we just have a tendency to do. But TV opens those doors. And this is why we love partnering with Hollywood Health and Society and we love telling these stories. Yeah. But you definitely need longer than 60 minutes. To, yes, you do. To have this conversation. You so. just skim the surface on this one. Yeah. So consider this part one. But but yeah, this is Ripple Effects, Race, Culture, and the Justice System presented by Hollywood Health and Society. And it is moderated by Bruce Evans, the Executive Vice President of 25 Stories. Enjoy. Moderator for Ripple Effects, Race, Culture, and, and the Justice System, uh, a discussion of how scripted series are depicting race, racism, and its intersection with the justice system. Before we get started, I want to thank Hollywood Health and Society, which I happen to be an advisory committee member for many years. I'm very proud to be associated with this organization. Um, they've begun a strong effort to support BIPOC writers and encourage more nuanced stories of BIPOC characters and communities, and I wish you every success with that endeavor because you truly have been a wonderful organization. So now let's get to it and let's introduce our esteemed panelists. Uh, first, L. Johnson is a very talented writer who has written on many shows that deal with the justice system, Bosch, Homicide, Life on the Street, Law and Order, CSI Miami, among others. She's also penned a memoir, The Officer's Daughter, which recounts the story of her cousin, who sadly was murdered at the young age of 15. Elle grew up in a criminal justice family with her father being a parole officer. Uh, next, the amazing Tracy McMillan. <laughs> Truly an accomplished writer with a variety of credits. Um, you know, many may know her, her blog, why You're Not Married, which for two years was the most popular, most viewed article on Huffington Post. She also wrote a book by the same name. Her many credits include Necessary Roughness, Chase, Life on Mars, The United States of Tara. She won the 210 Writers Guild of America Award for Mad Men, along with the writing staff of that show. Um, currently, she is the creator of the new Hulu series, Unprisoned which is a great show, and I'm thoroughly enjoying watching it, and eager with Yvette, who I also <laughs> love, um, and it's inspired by her relationship with her dad. Um, next, last but not least, <laughs> we are thrilled to have another terrific writer join us for the panel, Christy Corsack. Yay! <laughs> Started her career in the very popular series, Girlfriends, She's since written on such series as It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Everyone Hates Chris, Madam Secretary, and currently the very popular Superman and Lois on the CW. And you're working with my friend, Ritzy Tullock, who I, she's been at my house a number of times, and she's a lovely, lovely lady. So. That's awesome. Um, before we get to the subject at hand, I think we all, with such amazing people on this panel, I think we would all love to hear their individual journeys as writers. And so, can you tell us just a bit about that journey? Ellie, you want to start us off? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure how to condense it, but as <laughs> Bruce mentioned, I come from a law enforcement family, and uh, I basically kind of pursued television writing, particularly cop shows, because of having a dad who was a parole officer, an uncle who was a homicide detective in Manhattan, and having this experience when I was 16 years old of having my 16-year-old cousin murdered in a Burger King robbery gone awry. She had her face blown off by a sawed-off shotgun, and it was front-page news because her father was a homicide detective, and that experience really kind of influenced the rest of my life and my interest in telling stories about crime and criminal justice and feeling that I really understood who cops were, but also feeling like I really wanted to understand how someone becomes a criminal and does these unspeakable things. And so that's kind of how I 
segued into writing for television, particularly working on cop shows for the majority of my career. Well done. <laughs> um, I started out in journalism. I worked in TV news for 16 years. Um, then I, I don't I mean, how do you say it? I, like, I had a baby. I was in a band. <laughs> yeah, I started knitting. I, like, which is to say that I, I gave myself the right to write a song, to put a thing out there, to be like, all right, here it is, judge. And there was definitely something about having a baby for me. I know this is like, well, how did I, how did it get here? That was really important because there was this moment. I always tell the story. There's this moment where everyone's like looking at you and you're like, oh, <laughs> look at all these people. I'm like, every single thing I thought I was protecting, you know, like, oh, I have to look a certain way or people are going to judge me. I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. So that gave me, I was like 32. That gave me the right to say this or to do that or to fail or to sound dumb or to whatever, you know what I mean? All the things I was afraid of, I was like, oh, I've been seen, so who cares? And that's when I, that kind of really started my creative journey from being a person who wrote other people's stories for other people to a person who be, had authorship. I knew one person in the business. I said, how do you write? How do you write TV? I've always sort of wanted to do that. She's like, well, everyone thinks they can do that. And I was like, okay, well, let me try. And she said, well, here's what you do. You have a character, they have a problem, they try to solve their problem, they get up a tree, they try to solve the problem again, they get further up the tree, they try to solve the problem again, and they fall out of the tree. And that's your structure. And I was like, okay. This was like in 2000. And I went off and I wrote a Drew Carey and a... Dharma and Greg, spec. And she read them, she's like, whoa. Now, I wish I could tell you that I just, my career started, it didn't. I, five years passed, a whole bunch of things happened, life, and then I wrote this thing about the moment I was in in my life. And all my best writing is about a moment I'm in in my life, including unprisoned. And um, I, by this time, she was like co-EP level. And I was like, hey, you want to read this thing? And she's like, no, I'm way too busy, sorry. Um, but I will give it to my agent. If he likes it, he'll, he'll call you. And if he doesn't like it, he won't. And he called me eight months later. And that is basically how I got started writing TV. And then I kind of went in and just, you know, you have to learn the business, which is the whole other part. And that's, but that's basically how I became a writer. And Christy, I forgot to say that. Your dad was a police officer as well. So all three of these ladies have touched the social ju social justice and the justice system. Period. Yeah, my my uh, my stepdad uh, was a Baltimore City uh, police officer and sergeant. And uh, what's funny is my biological dad was sort of a con man. So I got both sides. <laughs> Your mom has a type. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it has all helped me with my career and writing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I we moved around a lot when I was a kid. I was mostly with my mom. Uh, and so all I wanted was stability. I would write for fun, but I went to Johns Hopkins undergrad. I was going to be a doctor. I could see that future laid out. And then I just got so burnt out that I took a semester of writing where I jammed in all my humanities. And I called my mom and I was like, I think I'm going to be a writer. And she was like, thank goodness. Because she, she always knew. But I was desperate for a path that I could see because we moved around so much. Um, but a part of that moving around led us to, um, I spent a lot of time in like comedy clubs when I was a kid. And a bunch of those comedy writers became TV writers. So I actually, I knew it was a career. I knew it was a thing. But none of those guys looked like me. They were white, you know, just white dudes. Um, and they would send me scripts to read. And I guess my mom was sending them my writing which I never knew because, again, it wasn't the path I was on. And so when I changed, when I changed my direction, um, a family friend, well, actually, I took a detour. Uh, I got engaged, worked in his family's Greek restaurants. Um, like, I just I took care of my mom who was sick and had a full other life, which I think is something I tell people who want to get into writing is don't just go from film school to Hollywood, like, have a full life because that's really what that's what we want in the writer's room. Um, so I had this whole other life. And then my mom was like, oh, 
our, our friend uh, is working on a show. He doesn't think it's going to last, but you should come out and uh, kind of get a crash course in writing. And that doesn't, or a crash course in TV making. And it doesn't mean that like I came out and got a job. He just got me a meet, an interview uh, to be a production assistant. And I got it. And, uh, and that's where I first started learning. And it was on uh, HBO's Entourage. And that was like, just Hollywood in your face. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it's like. But I also was like, this is comedy. I can write this. <laughs> Wrote my first <laughs> entourage spec. <laughs> and I was like, you know, had like, I was audacious enough to like give it to my boss. And he was like, no, I don't know if what you, I don't know, I'm not sure. I don't think you're a writer. But someone, my friend gave it to his agent. And his agent was like, this is a great entourage script and I got hip-pocketed from there. And so through this very weird path, I ended up uh, getting hip-pocketed, uh, which just means that they like, they're not representing you, but they're kind of waiting for you to get your own job, and then they'll decide if they'll represent you. Exactly. It is one of the exactly. most annoying things in this industry. You know, I'll put you in my hip pocket until you actually make it, and then I'll represent you That's and right. take your money. That's yeah, right. yeah, thank you. Yes, yes. yes. But it, it all, it worked out um, after lots and lots of assistant work. I had a very long path of just working and assisting, but I also got a great education doing that and eventually um, I was staffed. So that was my, that's my story. <laughs> and all of your stories are great stories. Um, you know, this business is, is tough. We all know it. And it, especially for people of color and um, I'm sure as people of color, as women of color, you have faced challenges in the writer's room. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit of, of some of those challenges that you've had to face, um, often being probably the only person in the room. Yeah, I mean, I will say, uh, you know, uh, frequently on procedurals, cop shows, I was often the only woman in the room and the only person of color, and I feel like I would get hired because they would say, oh, well, we have a female character or there's a black character on the show, so we want your your voice there. It was very overtly, like, you are being hired because you are a, a black woman, and that's the expectation. Um, but what's always so interesting, being a black woman in America um, and kind of being on the margins I have to understand the majority culture. So I felt like I really understood white men in a way that they didn't understand themselves because I had to study them to, you know, to get along with them and also having the, the law enforcement background of my family and, and kind of that dual perspective of, uh, you know, black men in law enforcement and, and um, having to understand kind of both sides of that coin because of it. Um, but my experience was always that I would get in these rooms where I would frequently be the only person like myself and having to um, stand up for my perspective or the other perspective. And, and you know, with my backstory, often also feeling like, look, if we're gonna do stories about criminals um, of a certain ilk, we should look into their backgrounds as well. Like, why do people act the way they do? It's not just a blanket, they're a bad guy, they're a criminal, and that's it. It's like, there's gotta be a motivation as well. Um, and so I feel like my background kind of contributed to that, but also put me in a position where I had to make sure that I was always representing and not being afraid to speak up, you know, and, and not stopping myself from speaking up so that the stories that I wanted to tell could be told as well. Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the things about the writer's rooms I've been in, I mean, I'm trying to think, I can't count every room, but one of the more remarkable things is that I'm usually in a room with another black person, and that, and exactly, right? And you're like, mo that's a testament to the showrunners I've worked with, that I have usually not been the only black person in the room. But what I will say the real challenge for me was, I came up, I was a diversity hire, but I was a diversity, I did staff writer, five times mm -hmm. and it took me and then I took the most challenging show I was ever on I'm not going to say which one it was but Bruce did read the name of it <laughs> <laughs> which one was yeah, it even Let's when you say it I'm like yes. 
No, no, don't guess. No. Because I have so much respect for everyone I've worked yes. with, honestly. Even the terrible people. I'm like, you know what? It was all part of the thing. But um, I took that job. It wasn't the right job for me, you know? Um, but I took that job because they were going to make me a story editor. And I wanted to get paid for a script. And I'd been, I'd been on whatever, four or five shows. It was my fifth show. Um, yeah, when you're a staff writer, you don't get paid for your scripts. You don't get paid for your scripts. And I think that's one of the things that we're trying to change in the writer's strike. Um, so it was very difficult to get to, to the next level. That was very, very hard. Now, I will say, I'm a lucky lady in the sense that when I did get a show on the air in year 16, I was ready. It is not like, because, you know, in peak TV, you've got so many people getting shows very early on. I remember going to a premiere once and the person, the creator got up and said, when I started this process, I'd never even written an outline. And I'm like, that sounds hard. Because <laughs> it's hard enough without, if you don't know what you're doing and other people can, whatever. So I would say that the diversity hire thing was probably, obviously I'm grateful, but it was also like, it was like being, uh, you know, south of the 10. You know what I mean? I was not getting... <laughs> it took a long time, and it was very frustrating and difficult, but we got there. Yeah. I, I had a similar experience. I was a staff writer on a few shows because of the... Di very grateful for the diversity hiring mm -hmm. program. Um, however, once they get to a point of, oh, we actually have to pay this writer, right. you go from, you know, like oh, these are my friends, this is my family, my show family, to um, we can no longer afford to have you. Uh, and then you are just stuck, and the next job will offer you staff writer again. Uh, and it really is, it's just like, am I not good enough to be hired as a paid writer? Um, or one that the, it has to actually come out of the show's budget. And finally, I did make my way up uh, to like story editor, and then... Uh, that show got canceled. And then the next show, which I was so excited for, and I knew the showrunner and all this stuff, he was like, we can only afford to pay you staff writer. And I was like, no! Oh and it was a black showrunner and a black show, and I'm not going to say what it was, yeah. but it just it killed me, and yeah. I didn't take it. Good and then I didn't yeah. work for a while, and I was like, mm -hmm. oh, no! Uh, but then it all, it, it did work out. Yeah. I, I, I just, like, it's just one of those things. It does kick you sometimes. And as like, and I would call my agents. I'm like, I am a woman of color. People like me. Yeah. Why aren't I like out there? <laughs> but it is. And most of my, the beginning for sure. I was, I worked in comedy a lot. I was often the only woman, the only person of color. And it's a mix. It's like, you've got to stand up for people of color everywhere. And you're also being looked to, to represent people of color everywhere. And you've had your experience. Uh, and it's like, how do I, how am I the face of everyone? And especially when like, I think black men are like somehow the Swiss army knife of writing. Like they're like, oh, I can write for black people. I can write for Asian people. I can write for everyone. But when it comes to black writers, it's like, oh no, we have a black character. We need a black writer. And it's like, no, I can write for white men too. And a good portion of my career was writing for white men, which was exciting. Cause I'm like, ha here I am. <laughs> Look out black. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting experience. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely understand that. And for those folks who don't understand in terms of the diversity staff writing position, it, it was um, all the networks uh, in an effort to increase diversity on staffs created programs where they would pay for the, a diversity staff writer on the staff of the show, um, which in its idea is a good thought, but unfortunately, what often would happen as the writers would want to move up and it should move up, the networks would only pay the amount of money for a diversity staff writer and there's a certain amount of money for that. And so once writers started to raise, that meant that the show had to pay the difference between what the network would pay and, and the rest would have to come out of the show's budget. And that's when one of the most frustrating things of my career would happen because so many times these showrunners would say, oh, you know, we can't afford to, to pay that, that small difference. Yeah. And it was just incredibly frustrating. And I often tried to fight that fight at my network. But, but you know, it, it's, I also can feel that uh, for the longest time when I started my career, 
believe it or not, this obviously was in the, this many years ago when it was just Fox, ABC, CBS, and NBC, but for the longest time, I was the only black man at any of those networks in programming. So for multiple years, it was just me. Um, and, you know, being that only person in the room, being asked to speak for all black people, um, it, you know, it's a very, very tough position. And I know that so many of you were put in that same position too. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it's really rough. But we have survived, we have endured, and now we can kind of hopefully bring others up along and uh, give them the guidance and mentorship that they so readily deserve. I want to just say something off of that, because I, when you are the only person in that room, I think a lot of times uh, you feel like you have to get it right, like you have to, yeah. th that there's only one you know, perspective or that you have to get the, the issue said properly. And I had to finally let go of that and get to a point where it's like, you know what, this is crazy for, for me too. Like sometimes I'm mad at y'all and sometimes I agree with you. And sometimes, you know, it's like I have a different perspective given whatever the issue is. And so it may seem like I'm schizophrenic, but this is just the reality of being a person of color in America, that there are so many different ways that you can feel about things. And by the end of my career, I worked in a show where one of the writers said to me, he said, you know, you have a remarkable willingness to be difficult in the room. <laughs> and, and I was at once kind of insulted, but also kind of like, yeah, that's right. I do. I'm going to be difficult. So that's kind of your problem, not mine. I'm with you. Um, okay, so all three of you have insight into the justice system as a result of your backgrounds. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into how that has, and obviously, Tracy, and we'll talk more specifically about your show, but you know how that insight has played into your writing over the years. Add that notch. Obviously, with your procedurals, that has definitely come into play. Yeah, I mean, and also it's interesting. I've, I, you know, being the daughter of someone in law enforcement, I felt like one of the shows I really enjoyed writing for was Bosch because of the relationship Bosch has with his daughter Maddie. I felt like that was something that I could really um, explore in more and deeper detail. Um, but I, I definitely, in many ways, I'm still working out all of those kind of childhood issues and trying to explore, you know, themes of law enforcement and how that affected my father as a black man uh, and how that trickled down to me as a family member. And so I feel like just my background really lent itself to looking into law enforcement stories in a, in a different way. Um, I mean, I don't know. Somebody said to me early on, you have to write what only you can write. <laughs> then my joke is, but first you're going to write on some cop shows, okay? <laughs> because you have a kid and he wants to eat and go to school. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, but um, so that was, it. but in the back of my mind, I always knew. I wrote a spec early on called Life After Life about a version of Unprisoned. It was a version of Unprisoned. Um, so I just knew that I had a lot to explore around my dad being in prison and the way it impacted my relationships with men. And, um, you know, I'm still working on that. It's been an arc and really unprisoned. So I've written it over the years in various ways. Like sometimes if I were pitching to a network, I would be like, yeah, I'm going to make this. Because for a while there, I was every year, it's kind of like, the way your year is structured is you sort of staff on someone else's show and then you, try, you develop your own show in the other six months of the year, just roughly. And so somebody would come to me and be like, yeah, we want to do, it was always like a 29-year-old black woman does blank, right? <laughs> They're like, a 29-year-old black woman becomes mayor of Detroit. A 29-year-old black woman becomes, <laughs> um, you know, an, a cop in Dallas. I mean, literally. And so I would make these 29-year-old black women have a dad who had just gotten out of prison. <laughs> because it was like, well, that's my story. I can write into this thing I'm trying to figure out. So that was one way that it happened when I was... But then, you know, there's... Uh, I went through a, another breakup. 
the one that's in the show. And I was like, by this time, I'm like a co-EP level. So what I do when I go through a breakup is I go to Paris, okay? <laughs> and I sit and I write my little butt off and then I shop or whatever. Um, I'm sorry, I sound super bougie, but um, I'm very lucky. You know, this is the dream for me. <laughs> to be bougie. Yes, <laughs> the dream is, I'm like, my first dream was to be middle class and then my next dream was to be bougie, yes. So I go there and every day I wake up and I write for three hours and then I walk around and I wrote Unprisoned in that circumstance and because I was like, I'm still trying to work out how this relationship with this man who loved me but couldn't show up was affecting all these choices I was making, you know? And so, uh, you know, it's like you just lean into your circumstances and that is going to be the most interesting quote, material. It's not material, though. It's just your life, you're just writing it. And it's the one thing no one else can do. And you have no, like, job... Your job security, especially in AI, the world of AI, is going to be that intangible. What is your insight? What is your... Um, what do you know that nobody else knows? Like, that is really where it's going to live from here on out, you know? Because AI can do the boring thing, you know? Yes. The news story. Yes, it's the, the... On the picket line, there's been a sign that I think has gotten a lot of... Uh, press and it's uh you know ai doesn't have childhood trauma and it's like <laughs> you know <laughs> and that is exactly what we can bring that ai cannot <laughs> um i i actually haven't written on uh, a crime drama of any kind or um but that doesn't mean i'm not writing about my my experience in that uh i find i tend to be writing for a lot of complicated male figures and it is uh, both my dad and my stepdad and my stepdad who is a cop and or you know was a cop um but he was a good cop because he thought like a criminal um and they all do yes exactly <laughs> yes and it's like and that so it is like so my dad being an actual criminal <laughs> and then my my stepdad it, it just they're complicated and there's a bit of narcissism too and I'm I'm definitely have found myself writing for a lot of those characters and pulling out that the, the you know how I felt in certain moments or how my mom like the, the the stories that have interesting family dynamics especially with more narcissistic male characters is exactly where I find myself um, and then also yes in dating life I was like I'm dating my dad I got to get out of this and never again and I have found someone who isn't like my dad. So that's a good thing. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's an achievement, honestly. Yeah. Tracy, was it, I mean, obviously you said that you had put in, you had put in previous work, infused the idea of your relationship with your dad into, the, into those shows, but was it a difficult decision to actually write a series entirely about your relationship with him? I'm going to say no, because I never in a million years dreamt it would get made. Because mm -hmm. I'd been around a long time. I'd been, I'd sold pitches every year since like 2009. And none, I never even got a pilot. So I'm just like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll take a check. Like, whatever. I I'd never, I, I was kind of jaded a little bit. I was like, and also I had already written a memoir and Again, I go back to the childbirth moment. It's like, whatever, you can see me. You know, part of it is a Buddhist thing for me. It's like, and I'm not claiming I'm a big Buddhist. There's just an idea in Buddhism that if I'm not who I think I am, how could I be who you think I am? You know, so go ahead, judge. It's, it has nothing to do with me. So my whole thing is like, transparency, there's a power in transparency. You set other people free. You set yourself free. There's nothing to hide. It doesn't matter. Everyone's flawed. And, like, I can tolerate whatever is my story, whatever, you know, whatever bad things. It's not like I'm trying to be like, only look at me from this angle. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's okay. It's okay. So it wasn't scary. But can I say a funny thing? That, so I met with Bruce very early in my career. I think I hadn't even gotten my first job yet. It was probably right before my first job. You probably gave my script to Kevin Falls, who gave me my first job. But we had a meeting, and I was talking about my dad, and I was saying, my dad's going to get out of prison. And I was like, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, could, should I let him come live with me? And you said to me, and I just remembered this right now, <laughs> you said to me, oh, no, you can't do that. 
you were very clear that I could not have the kind of chaos. Like, I had worked so hard to create a life, and my son at that time was probably 10. I had created a life for myself that you can't, in the interest of being open-hearted or a good daughter, invite insanity and chaos into my life. Not in real life, but I could explore it safely in the work. So um, I think writing it allowed me to process it without having to, you know, be real literal. I didn't have to get literal here, like where you're going to have this person who is not necessarily, who is a, you know, he was an okay person in his own way. But sometimes I think, maybe I was in a pretend relationship with my dad. Like, maybe he wasn't there and I made it up. Do you know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. he was in the phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he died in January. And in, in my mind, he's kind of still in the phone. Mm -hmm. I don't know where he is. He's like, wherever he's been. Mm -hmm. And the other day, I was like, oh, God, I may have... There's this term called a fantasy bond where you have a, pretend, a fantasized relationship with a, a figure, a parent figure. You imagine they were better to you than they were. And I'm like, God. So you know what? It, even in death, I mean, it's still, it, these things continue to unfold. In fact, um, maybe I'll do an episode on that. <laughs> Thanks, room. <laughs> it's going on the board. It's going on the board. Yeah. I gotta say, I'm, I'm blown away that, that we had that conversation, which is like, wow, how life comes full yes, circle. It it's, it's really amazing. Um, so I've been enjoying your show. And, and, and early in the early episodes, Delroy is, um, he's a, he cooks and he cooks very well. And he applies for a job at a restaurant and he seemingly gets the job and and you know you're feeling like oh good you're like I was you're kind of like oh yeah and then next thing you know the the manager comes around the next day and tells him I'm so sorry but the company has a policy where we can't hire ex felons and you know and, and obviously it's it's a, it's a a moment in the for him and and but I'm I'm curious as to how you're you're portraying kind of moments like that the stigma of being incarcerated in the show and how, you know, other, other ways that will be seen in the series. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is just um, real things that happened. That, the job thing is really, you can't be independent without a job. And you, right. the system is so stacked. The job is the whole thing for my dad. That is always what led back to the life, mm -hmm. you know? Um, a terrible catch-22. And if we could reduce that stigma, even a little bit, like, I'm not very activist, per se, but I do what I do. You, you do what you can do, and this is what I can do. Is I just wanted America to fall in love. Because if you met my dad, you'd be like, well, what a nice man. You would just be like, he's so great. Um, you would never know he was a criminal. It just, he doesn't come off that way. And so I wanted America to fall in love with a career criminal, and I wanted to humanize that, and I wanted to show all the people around it. It's not just this one person. It's every person. And all the press that we've done, so many people are like, that's my story, that's my story, my dad, my this one, you know, my brother, my uncle, because it's just part of our country. This, we just throw people in jail, and, like, that's it. It's a terrible situation. But it's very specific, I think, also to people of color and communities of color, because I feel like these stories, you know, it's in television, we're in a moment where we're able to expand our vocabulary about what being a criminal is and that, that you know, that doesn't necessarily define the totality of a person. And I feel like a lot of times in television shows that that was only extended to white characters, yeah. that you weren't able to have a black character who was a criminal and you could see the full breadth of a person, right. that this was someone who was a father, yeah. you know, who like Tony was Soprano. A yeah, exactly. You're like, he's Tony, a hero. You're right. Yeah. You, you idolize that, yeah. but that was not done mm -hmm. necessarily for black characters until like maybe oh, The Wire, you know, where you get to see the kind of systemic issues that turn these people 
to crime. And the job is the whole thing. If you can't, if you're in a, in a system that has made it impossible for you in an impoverished area to make a living, and so you resort to selling drugs or any kind of crime, then you are stigmatized by the rules of being in the prison system because when you get out of prison, you cannot vote. Uh, you may not be able to get a job. You are limited and restricted in ways that the general population has no idea about. I mean, you look at what's happening with voter registration yeah. now, and a lot of the pretense of that is like, well, you know, people who are in prison are getting out and voting and that they shouldn't be allowed to vote. And it's like, well, why the hell not? They're citizens of this country. Why are they being denied if they've right. done their time? Totally. So there's so many aspects to what happens to uh, people of color and these characters mm -hmm. that I feel like has not been explored until recently. Right. You know, and you know, you, you, we were talking earlier, or you mentioned earlier, George Floyd and how you know the murder of George Floyd um, presented an opportunity for the rest of the country to finally get on board and say like, oh yeah, this does happen. For I think a vast majority of the country, people were like, no, you know, police brutality and you're exaggerating and it's not that bad and slavery was so long ago. And what George Floyd I think did was enable a conversation where writers of color and people of color could say, this is what I have been talking about and now do you see? And people have to say, yeah, I've seen it. You can't say you haven't seen it. I mean, right. if Rodney, if right. you didn't see it with Rodney right. King, it's like right. you had a whole other slew of problems. But now you really couldn't say you hadn't seen it. And and that, and, that, and thank you, because that's, that was you know where I was going to go next. Because when George Floyd happened, there was this, truly this conversation that began. And, it, and I know I got... <laughs> Many a call from my white friends who were like, oh, like, like, like they had never seen it before. And suddenly there it was. They couldn't deny it. It was right there. And I felt like I was a therapist all of a sudden trying to get them through their guilt over having been totally oblivious to what has been for us every day of the week. And so I'm very curious. And also, I want to make sure, like, our time, what, how are we on time? I, I can't, I forgot what our session Okay, it's, it's 10 minutes left of the session. Okay, because I want to make sure that people have a chance to ask questions. So, um, but I'm really curious about the conversations that you had with other writers um, and other people in the industry when, when George Floyd happened. Do you want, Chris, do you want to start? Sure. Um, yeah, George Floyd during the pandemic was a very interesting time because it also was like a confluence of, I think, three events. It was, I think, Ahmaud Ar Aubrey, George Floyd, and the birder, uh, whose name I don't remember, but oh, what an... Yeah. Thank you. Yes, but those three things, I think, made it so it was just like, oh, yeah, oh, this is happening because it's been like, oh, systemic, you know, systemic racism, is it really a thing? And it's like, no, no, oh, it's no. a thing. <laughs> um, but yes, so many phone calls... Uh, which, I mean, it was, I was grateful for them because at the end, of, yes, it was, but it was like, oh, finally people are seeing, people were marching, people were, you know, and I, and I, I do, the show I got staffed on, so I was staffed on Superman and Lois during the pandemic and it was after all that. And I actually think that, I don't know, it was the first time that I had been staffed on a TV show that had, um, when I joined and jumped on the Zoom, it was a majority minority room <laughs> and and one through five on the call sheet and that like the top, you know, the main characters, like, cause it's about Superman and his family who are all white. And then the next characters, it, like they weren't black. Mm -hmm. And so usually if I was on a, a show that had black people in the, you know, the main cast, then you always have at least one writer or maybe two black writers. Um, but this one was totally mixed. And I actually, it was what you said earlier, it's a testament to the showrunner. Um, I actually think he just picked the writers he liked the most. But I wonder if subconsciously that was maybe in his head. But I do think people started making different choices. Tracy, did you want No, only that I actually went to Minneapolis in the pandemic, because my show is set in Minneapolis. I'm born and raised in Minneapolis. And um, it's a, kind of a specific place. Um, but I was like, oh my God, you know, the, the pandemic in Los Angeles was like the apocalypse. And I, I, my, I had an empty nest by then and I was like in my house 24 hours a day by myself going, holy shit. And I was like, I'm actually gonna go to Minneapolis. I was already developing and I'm gonna go there and I'm just gonna move back to Minneapolis for a few months. So that's what I did. And um, it was a really interesting time to be there and I went to the spot and it, you could feel it. I mean, it's still a memorial. I think the street is open now, but 
my experience of it was very sort of firsthand because I was in Minneapolis and and also very isolated, you know. Um, but yeah, I it's not something I've tackled directly in the show. It's there, but I'm bad at. I, I don't know if I'm bad. I don't know. I shouldn't make a claim like that. I'm. I I always want to stay away from something that feels like I'm not going to be able to really do this justice. So let's just tell the story I can do justice to and know that it is tapping on that same spot and let the audience make the connections. You know, I'm not going to tell you what to think or tell you how to think about this. I'm just going to give you some context. So, but maybe it's something I need to be more whatever about. That would be an interesting conversation. Next panel. I would, I would <laughs> stay. We'll do another one. Um, I know from the network perspective, when I was, you know, at NBC, it was it was a big conversation because for so long, cop dramas always have, you know, portrayed cops as being the heroes that are out there saving us day to day, and you know, and when George Floyd happened, I think there was a real awakening of okay. This is not necessarily the truth. In fact, it often, not often, but it, it certainly, there are these moments where it's far from the truth that law enforcement is protecting us. And so there was a real conversation as to how do we reflect that? Because network television is nothing but procedurals. How do we, how do we reflect that, that new awakening, that, that new epiphany? Um, in the storytelling, and without it being the shield, without right. it being the shield, did it? Did that? Did, did there were con- did any yeah. conversations? I mean, I felt like that there definitely was a feeling of like, okay, the cop show is going to die, and how can we do cop shows anymore? I mean, of course, it's not going to die, but I think what what ended up happening was it made it it made it possible for me um, as a writer to be even more vocal about some of these issues and to push back more, to have a more of a conversation and a dialogue because it was out there and it was no longer like just my opinion or, or that I was making it up and crazy um, about the situation and systemic racism. So I think it opened up a, a dialogue. Um, the thing that I, I do worry about though is that in some cases it's still performative. In a lot of cases now we have new tropes that have been added to the cop show, which is okay now, you're going to have the episode where the black man gets pulled over and it looks like it's going to go. So we've added to the kind of stereotypes. And I think that we can still go deeper into these things. And, and, you know, that takes some pushing. It's, it's stuff that's harder to do on network television and still even harder to do on streaming. I feel like there's more conversations and deeper places that we can go. Can I say something really quick? When I first started my very first agent, I think I I must have given him, uh, I had a version of this. And he was like, oh, I mean, this is, I'm not going to say who he is, but he was like, oh, uh, you can, you will never be able to have a black man be the lead on a TV show. And I was like, oh, I mean, he was just so, it had never occurred to me, wait, you're right. I have never seen a black man be the lead. And the only reason, I, I shouldn't say this, but I think the only reason my show is on the air in a world of IP, you know, in a world of tentpole IP is because of Kerry Washington mm-hmm. and because of Onyx, which is Tara Duncan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, which, you know, credit to Disney and, yes. and the Disney ecosystem. They did something forward after George Floyd that was meaningful and our show is part of it. And without all those factors, we would not be seeing this nuanced story about a black family after mass incarceration. Well, I w- I'll just say quickly, I, the reason I wrote my memoir, The Office's Daughters, because I tried to pitch it as a television show, and I was told to my face, the networks will never do a show about a black family. Can you make them white? And I was like, no, this is about my dad. I'm not going to change it. So I was like, fuck that. I'm going to write a memoir. But that I was, And this was pre-Empire. And everyone said, you cannot do a show with a, about a black family. No one's going to buy yeah, my, this. this. Mine was in 2008. Oh. So. I... I Back then, too, um, I, I, my, my mom's family uh, was very instrumental in the Underground Railroad. Um, my, one of my great, 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 
great uncle is a guy named William Still, who's considered the father of the Underground Railroad. And I pitched the idea. I was like, I had this whole world planned out and all this stuff. And my agents were like, we're not doing, people aren't doing black stuff. Is kind of, is basically what they said. And then years later, they're like, uh, Oprah's doing a show called Underground. And my William still is a character on it. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's my family. It's not even like, oh. yeah. so here we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but that's why it's important to have esteemed women like my panelists who have risen up the ranks and are getting to a, a position where they can make decisions and they can really impact the storytelling that's happening. And, and Tara Duncan was mentioned. Tara Duncan is the head of Onyx Media, which is a division of Disney. And so when you have a black woman in charge, guess what? You can actually get some progress made in terms of the storytelling. Yeah. And, and Tara was at Netflix before, and she yes. was instrumental in getting self-made, the story of Madam C.J. Walker done, mm -hmm. which is a show I co-show ran, and it's because of Tara. She's amazing. And she's the president of Freeform. Yeah. And they give me so much latitude. Like sometimes I'm like, damn, they're letting I'm like Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I want to do a dance off. Oh, I want to do that. And they'll be like, oh, okay. And I'm like, is this because my network president is a black woman? I'm like, because no one has not noted me to death, you know? On my whole career. It's, it's so exciting for me to see Tara and to see mm -hmm. Perlina Obokwe, who's the mm -hmm. president of Universal Studios, the television studios, and Channing Dungy, who's mm -hmm. the head of Warner Brothers Television. So, like, having those women in those positions is just really inspiring and really gives me hope for the future. So, you know, with that, I'm going to open up to some questions, because I'm sure you probably have some. So, uh, go ahead, just, we're close enough. You can just yell it out. <laughs> okay, this is a great perspective. So I'm going to quickly, quickly go over my prison experience, which is my mom, I'm an only child, my mom's an only child, and my grandma was an only child. My biological father owned nightclubs and was, I recently learned, uh, shot in a drive-by shooting from outside of his nightclub. I'm so sorry. And then my mother dated a man who was constantly imprisoned, in and out and in and out, and then we finally moved away. I raised my mom. She didn't raise me. And so the character of every person that's in prison has at least a circle exactly. of people around them that is also impacted by this. And so developing those people is something I'd love to hear about. And the people that are also, in, like, on the flip side, I'm a military spouse's best friend. So that's another level of auxiliary interest. So it's Fascinating, yeah. I mean, that was the idea. It was like, we do spend a lot of time on the criminals and the cops, but we never really have seen... Because here's what I'll say. I was a foster child because my dad was in prison. The foster child, the foster care system and the incarceration system are like analogs. It, it's like... Um, foster care is prison for children. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm putting hashtags, you know, hash marks up on the wall just like my dad is. I, my whole thing is tied to him. You know, every time he comes out, then I come out. And then I go back, and then I go back, and he goes back, and then I go back. And so this alone is like a huge connection that I had never seen really made in media because I don't think, like we get these like fantasy versions of foster care or like fan... And, the one thing I really wanted to do was to make a hero, not an anti-hero. That's the other thing. Every time I'm seeing like, people in this world, they're anti-heroes. And they behave in ways that I don't behave. I'm like, no, I care. I care a lot about everything. <laughs> I'm like, I watch people on TV. I'm like, how are they doing? She just fucked the pizza guy and didn't even care. I'm like, I'd be in love with the pizza guy now. I'm like, wow, can we have a relationship? Where's our relationship? You know what I mean? So I just wanted to see people who are trying really hard to love each other despite all this, you know, uh, systematic oppression and their own stuff that they're dealing with. Because there's a certain amount of, I don't want to call it self-loathing, but like generational trauma, the way it manifests is by ways that you behave that are not in your own best interest. 
you know? And so well, how do we really get into that and do a human, like really get into it and go, no, this is, she's not behaving in ways that are good for her a lot of the time. <laughs> well, I think also it's a testament to their writing on your show. You're writing from character. I think when you start in a lot of shows, if you're only starting with plot and you're like, oh, I want this cool thing to happen and how can I make this plot point happen or this set piece happen, it's not coming from character. It's not coming from a place of these are real interior. human beings. Yeah, an interior place. It's coming from an exterior. I want to move the structure of this show in such a way that we build to this act break. And you're and it's not building out of the characters. And I think that if you're writing something, you need to think about what are the characters really going to do, not what the structure of the piece is. And, you know, I want to have this tremendous moment and I'm building to that instead. I feel like most protagonists in television are avoidant attachment strategists, okay? Like, they're all on the avoidant side. And, and that's because I think a lot of creators are on the avoidant side. Because avoidant is, like, bulletproof. You're just, like, super, like, nothing affects me. And that gets you far in our business. But I wanted to do an anxiously attached female protagonist. Because, especially female protagonists, they are all bulletproof. And I'm like... Yeah, I hate the trope in television. This used to happen a lot in pilots where the main character would be in bed with a guy and she didn't know his name and it was kind of like, yeah. okay, for her. Yeah. And then she goes to work and that's her boss. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, yeah. if I see that one more yeah. time, I'm yeah. going to yeah. shoot yeah. myself. I hate yeah. that. I it's like, who acts like yes. that? I, I don't know. know a woman who acts like I that. Know. <laughs> I don't know. I either. Yeah. I mean, I know a couple, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's get some other questions before we, before we, go, we could go on all night with that. Yeah, <laughs> other questions for the panelists? <laughs> okay, we got one back. Well, I'm noticing there's more on TV. Will Trent is really focusing on the foster care system. And that's, I think he's Hispanic. I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> I'm starting to see more about the foster care system. Um, is that something that needs to be skewed more towards? Maybe the African-American community or what? I don't know. I feel like... I think what I need to see is not the after-school special version of something. Not the external... Like, I'm standing out here looking at these interesting creatures in foster care. You know what I'm saying? I think the best storytelling is what I was saying. It's like when it's internal. And what we haven't seen in these kinds of marginalized groups is, I mean, I don't know, how, how many foster children have gotten shows on the air? I mean, it could be I'm in a sample of one. You know what I'm saying? I did work for a show called The Fosters, right? which was really, yeah. which was about People love that. that show. Yes. Yeah. And it just was groundbreaking in terms of looking at LGBTQ mm -hmm. issues and, you know, the lesbian couple. One of the parents was a, a cop. So that, you know, that kind of pulled in a little procedural element that I think made people feel oh. comfortable. But it was about foster care kids. And one of the interesting things for me was the research that we did going to foster homes and just being like, this is really messed up. Like yeah. this... This system is broken. Yeah. And I mean, I had a great, I had bad ones and good. I had a, one great one. And also I was in Minnesota and they're like legit socialists up there, especially <laughs> when I was growing up. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you couldn't do better than to end up in foster care in Minneapolis in the 70s. That's it. That's the top. That's the, the Harvard of foster care. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, did you, was the creator of that show, Foster? No, the creator was not. But and they, where did that come from for them? You know, I... I Someone tell, had an idea. You know, tell us. What was it? I actually know the answer to that. Because it's Peter Pace. The executive at Disney was a foster child. Mm. Uh, Who? Ambrose. And he oh. recently wrote a book, actually, about his um, growing up. He was homeless with his mom for years. Mm -hmm. And so he was integral in getting that show. I don't oh, know interesting. Know he it, but he was right. integral in getting that show. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important to have advocacy and and having somebody push the ball mm -hmm. up the, the boulder up the hill. And so often we're put in the position to have to to do that. And thank God that you know 
we're still here and we've we've managed to do that many a time but it's a struggle it really is and i so uh go ahead kate Oh, did you have a question? Oh, I was just going to ask if you could do anything different in your careers, what would it be? Hmm. Hmm. I wouldn't do anything different. So the, the weight, the challenges, and the struggles, you'd still live those right now? Yeah. Would you different decisions, I guess? No, well, I didn't even start writing TV until I was 42. So I, I had already had a whole career as a television news writer. So I feel like this was my doing a different career, you know? And where I was able to take a lot more risks and really kind of commit to my own point of view. And, you know, something happens as a woman, you turn 40 and you're like, oh, okay. And then you turn 50 and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I am so excited. I Because I'm like, I think it just keeps going, you know, but yeah. You know, I think the thing is, is like, if you, if there's something on your heart and you really want to do it, you just got to just hold that space and let the universe create itself around your intention and amazing things can happen that you cannot even imagine. Like how in the heck did all this unfold? But once I got aligned with that, then yeah, there's nothing I would change because it's, it's like you're aligned with this higher thing, you know? And everything you do becomes aligned with that higher thing. So I feel like you just commit to the what and forget about the how and let the how take care of itself and it will. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't, I also, I wouldn't change anything about my actual journey, but if I could, I guess, give advice to baby writer Christy, um, it would be, uh, I guess, just trust your voice, because I think sometimes as when you're coming up, and especially when you are the one in a room, one woman, the one, you know, the one black person, the one whatever, you, you're, you second guess sometimes, and you get in your head, and also, I have to say, as a woman, I noticed that a lot of uh, you would speak up, and it would be as if no one heard you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, did I whisper? Did I whatever? And then yeah. someone else will repeat the same thing. Yeah. Same thing. And everyone's like, yeah, great idea. So in one way, it was like, oh, that feels, I was totally ignored, or maybe they just didn't hear me. But then the other way was validation, because it was like, I had a good idea. And the more I started to gain confidence, the more I think my, my statements in the room ended less with, and what about this? You know, like it going up. Or this like is a, a bad idea, but. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because when you preface that, they just shut you, they tune you right out. Uh, and I think the more, I think, I actually think my voice maybe got a little lower too um, as I gained confidence and people started hearing me. But I would definitely tell baby writer Christy, like, trust your voice, speak up. It doesn't matter if you're the token, just, you know, the token has spoken. You know, just make sure that it's out there um, and trust, you know, trust your gut. Because you're in that room for a reason, even if you're the one. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. God knows we could speak about this for a year. Um, we've, we've just scratched the surface, but I'm so thankful to these amazing women that I've been on this podium with. Thank it's truly first. just a, an honor for me. And so um, I'm going to wrap it up. I would also like to thank Hollywood Health and Society again for sponsoring this. Um, there. They're an amazing organization that really provides Hollywood with, with true facts about so many issues, and we're so thankful to you. And I just want to add also that later today, there'll be a happy hour entitled Do the Right, W-R-I-T-E, Do the Right Thing Happy Hour in honor of BIPOC creatives. So please check your schedules and uh, join everyone for that happy hour. And thank you so much for coming. We so appreciate it. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit ATXFestival.com. <laughs>